0: Today, we're talking to Jim from Zebra, all about cutting-edge warehouse robots. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Jim, how are you? Good. I was just learning about robots. Awesome. This is great, man. I got to talk with uh, Bill yesterday, Mm -hmm. and uh, he told me a little bit about what you guys are doing, and I was hoping I could hear it directly from you
1: yeah you bet yeah soon to be our uh, ceo here at uh head zebra wait well, you know it's interesting because the uh, i mean i've been in the robotics space now for a while and you know it really came out of my interest in i mean i used to run supply chains for hewlett-packard for almost 10 years and uh i would find that we had all of these problems i'm like you know there's got to be a better way there's got to be things that we can do with technology to Make things, you know, better, faster, cheaper, more reliable, more accurate, higher quality, like all those things that we struggle with. So I got involved in doing more sort of tech development to help people like me when I was at Hewlett-Packard. And um, for the last 10 years, really focused that in on on robotics and how can we do things with um, not, not just hardware robotics, but really sort of the software side, like what are the things that you can do with software and data coupled with sort of physical manipulation of the environment? To uh, you know, to drive the kinds of results that people who run supply chains are looking for. How do I get more productivity from a labor perspective? How do I get more throughput? How do I get, you know, higher accuracy? Like when I order the brown shirt, I get the brown shirt, not the blue one. You know, and those kind of things. And um, the, the, you know, so many of the challenges people have right now is I'm trying to be more efficient. I mean, you know, the more and more people are ordering online. Our expectations are getting greater and greater you know what can we do with um, software enabled robots to make that easier and better for people and so you know that's really been my mission over the last decade or so was helping people all kinds um not just the so the the big highly funded companies but small companies in all kinds of industries take advantage of robots and um yeah i've made that my life's work over the last decade and uh, just been having a blast doing it so
0: Is it mainly like the third-party logistics shelf-picking warehouse area that you're in, or are you in other areas than that?
1: Not just, yeah. So warehousing of all kinds, um, certainly um, e-commerce, item picking, um, wholesale picking, store fulfillment, but also manufacturing. So if you think about um, whenever there's material movement required of any kind, like I want to get something from point A to point B, if there's a human involved in doing that, that's, that's a lot of walking and moving stuff around. So if I can do that with a robot instead of a person, it allows the person to be more productive at what they're really there to do. And so think about things like, um, you know, line-side replenishment. Like if I'm a highly skilled assembler of some high technology, at some point I need parts to put together. I can go off to the carousel that's on the other side of the building and go get those parts, but wouldn't wouldn't I rather, you know, just sort of sit where I am and have the parts brought to me? Um, And so that saves a lot of time Makes my job better, makes me more productive, you know, and has the robots doing what they're good at, which is, you know, moving stuff around. So a lot of manufacturing environments, a lot of warehouse environments, a lot of, um, a lot of item picking, each picking for sure.
0: How long until the robots that you produce can produce themselves?
1: You know, it's interesting that you say that. There are robots today that are making components of themselves. So um, if you look at some of the robotic arm providers most arms like ours are made up of multiple joints We got our shoulder we got our you know elbow we got our wrist in each of those joints is a um is a way that that one part of the arm is moving differently from another uh, a lot of robotic um arm joints are being made by robot today and so as they get more and more you know capable you're going to be able to put together yeah more and more of the robot over time but uh, yeah it's already it's already started Has anyone
0: put together a proof of concept on like a really small scale where there's you build the first set of robots, then they can mine and shape and build completely from scratch? So essentially, we could like ship these things to Mars and just have them start building and replicating.
1: Mm -hmm. Not yet. So not yet. But um, yeah, we'll we'll eventually get to that point. So yeah, you know, it's interesting because I mean, robots are our um, perspectives on what robots can do is shaped a lot by our experiences with them. And many of those experiences are in movies. And so you have this notion of, you know, a robot's like R2-D2 or it's like uh, Rosie on the Jetsons or it's a Terminator robot. Most robots are a lot less sexy and a lot less um, capable, you know, quite frankly. And and if you think about one of the things that, that humans are really good at is sort of dexterity in our hands. And if you look at most robots, most of the time what a robot is doing with their hand is with a suction cup. so if you think about yeah you know, like the end of you know, your vacuum cleaner, you know I reach down I my apply apply a suction and then I pick something up. They don't have sort of the same um, ability. in fact, when I look at if I go into a factory, if I go into a warehouse and I want to see is that task a good candidate for a robot the very first thing I look at is what is the human person doing with their hands because that's usually the first thing that would filter out, Um, you know, a robot from being able to perform that task. So, you know, hand technology is getting better. Um, It's going to get, you know, cheaper and cheaper over time. With machine learning and artificial intelligence, it's gradually going to be able to learn. And so there are, um, you know, applications of robots learning. As I pick more and more things up, I learn how to pick more and more things up, uh, including things that I may not have picked up before. And so that's getting better and better. But there's still in all honesty, there's decades before we've got robots going to Mars, sort of setting up shop. But uh, it'll, it'll, it'll get there. It's just uh, it's just not going to be overnight for sure. And what area
0: of your business, as far as the growth of it with the technological advancements and R and D or whatnot, what area are you most excited about? Like, what's the cool thing other than the hand stuff?
1: I mean, wh- one of the areas that um, the people that really been struggling with so with this sort of explosion of e commerce especially going through the pandemic, I mean, we're all ordering online, you know, and, and as I said, our expectations are like, like you know, I want it now. I hey, mean, hey, you know, true story, I ordered something this morning. I went on one of the dot coms and um, it said it would be here 11 o'clock this morning. And then, you know, at 12, it said, um, you know, it's going to be a couple of hours later, but it'll still be today. Um, and then right on before I got on, you know, the, 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 the our conversation, it said, yeah, we don't have any. And so you're not going to get it today. And so I had an expectation set that something was going to be here by eleven o'clock, and now it's looking like it's you know it's going to be tomorrow. Um, and so our expectations of what's happening have just been getting higher and higher, and it's um, it means that our you know our warehouses, our distribution centers, are going to need to operate in profoundly different ways if they're to meet that expectation and still do it in an efficient, cost-effective way. And so that's really been turning you know, companies, uh, starting companies to turn toward, how can I leverage automation? How can I leverage robotics? How can I make the most out of the limited number of people that I'm able to hire because there's such a, you know, a challenge sort of attracting and retaining, you know, people. And so, you know, when, when I, when I order those things online, if I can leverage and optimize the best of automation with the best of people and their capabilities and do that in an efficient way, that's where, um, Almost all of our demand and our interest from customers is today. You know, can I do robot-assisted zone-based each picking in a way that allows people to fulfill customers' expectations and do it more reliably than the experience that I had this morning? You should email their CEO
0: and say, "Hey, you should become a customer."
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, yeah, I was, I was I was thinking a few things, and, but none of them were particularly generative at the time because I was hoping that I was going to get what I was going to get today. So yeah, anyway, but, uh, but yeah, we could probably help them out with that.
0: Lead for sales team, my friend. That's what I do all the time. I screenshot stuff into my (laughs) sales team. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. So this is really cool.
0: How did you get involved in this as a kid? Were were you always involved in this? Is this something that came about when you were in college? How did you fall in love with this idea of robotics?
1: Well, you know, I was one of those, um, you know, I've got one of those t-shirts that says, uh, 1977 1980 1983 I was there you know I was standing in line at Star wars the first time mesmerized by r2d2 i I have to believe there's an, an army of us out there that are in robotics because of what we saw and experienced as a you know as a kid and um and i would say that was really sort of the first thing that got me you know excited I mean I tend to be a a more technical person by nature i mean my my degrees are in computer science and electrical engineering and it just it really sort of fascinated me what you could do you with know, with technology in in robotics kinds of applications and um and if and if you start to think about what we've been able to do over the last 10 to 15 years or so where it's not robots locked up in a cage because r2d2 wasn't in a cage you know rosie wasn't in a cage it was a a robot working side by side with a you know with a person and a lot of the technologies that we've been able to leverage over the last decade have allowed us to create these um robots that work you know side by side what are now generally referred to as collaborative robots robots that are you know human and and, and uh and, and robots working together and so i think it was those early you know, sort of formative years of a kid that got me, you know, sort of really excited about it. But then as I got into, you know, as I got into sort of running supply chains, just experiencing all of the challenges, you know, I did some design work in R&D for a while. Then I moved and did more work on manufacturing and supply chain. And honestly, I found the challenges from an engineering perspective in supply chain so much harder because the system is so constrained. Um, It's hard to create designs of things that work effectively when you've got such uh, you know um, you know constraints in your environment and so when you can leverage technology not to move along a curve but to shift a curve uh, I mean it can have a profound impact in your ability to you know to achieve objectives that you've got within the supply chain so a lot of that I had been focusing on from a software perspective and had done a couple of startups that you know leveraged early versions of uh, you know AI and, and, and machine learning and then I had gotten you know a call um, from a guy by the name of Rodney Brooks Rodney was one of the co-founders of iRobot, and so the Roombas that people have, sort of running around their house, was you know an inspiration that he uh, that he had. And, and um, I had known Rodney from back in my time at uh, at MIT. He was running CSAIL, which was the computer science artificial intelligence lab. But he and I had a conversation, and and he said, "Look, we see a real opportunity to do something very different with robots, and in some ways, the robotics industry, which has been providing." Robots in the manufacturing environments really since the early 1960s, 1961 was when the first robot was deployed in a production manufacturing environment, have largely been, you know, the innovation has been somewhat incremental. The robots in the 70s looked a lot like the 60s and those in the 80s looked a lot like the 70s. But there are whole companies and verticals and markets and industries that haven't been able to take advantage of robots because we haven't designed the robots that they can take advantage of. They're either too expensive or they need more flexibility or they're not easy to use, or you need a bunch of PhD roboticists uh, you know to be able to take advantage of them. And so what what attracted me to it is you know this idea of, you know can we can we democratize automation? Can we make robots accessible to all of the people that haven't been able to take advantage of them? So when you look at you know companies like Amazon acquiring Kiva, of course Amazon is able to take advantage of automation. They're Amazon. When you look at Apple able to take advantage of robotics, of course, Apple, but most of us aren't Apple or Amazon. And so if we're, you know, a typical mid to large size manufacturer in an industry, historically, um, most robots were sold in automotive, I may not have a bunch of roboticists on staff, um, or I may need to be able to, you know, have the flexibility to set up a line and run it for six months and then change it over. Traditional automation wasn't designed for that. It was custom designed to do one thing really well. And when you were done with it, you threw it away. If I get a job shop and I'm doing something different in the afternoon than I'm doing in the morning, clearly I can't you know, spend six months building an automation solution and then throw it away. And so it was that opportunity to look at how can we build robots that work in those environments with those challenges um, in, in the places where people already have operation so they don't have to sort of scratch uh, have to start everything from scratch and, and and start over where they really understand their processes but they're not experts in robots and they don't want to be experts in robots they want to be experts in what does my process or workflow do that creates value for their end customer and then how can they leverage robots without necessarily being experts in robots and a lot of that comes down to sensor technology so the, the, the way in which I can deploy and use sensors that allow me to, navigate in very unstructured environments i mean if you go in a warehouse today and you know you look around you'll see pallets full of boxes some boxes are sort of hanging over edges you've got you know somebody unpack something and threw something on the floor those are really hard environments for traditional robots to be able to navigate because it's constantly changing well if you have a robot with the right kind of sensors it can detect what's going on it knows what the broader mission is i'm trying to get from point a to point b you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, if I'm arriving at Penn Station in New York, and I want to go to the Empire State Building. Like, you're not going to take sort of the line that is on the map, because you're going to be constantly dodging and weaving people and potholes and, um, you know, some cup that somebody's thrown in the middle of the road, right? So you're going to be sort of navigating your way there. We needed robots that are able to operate in that kind of way. And so um, we now have the technologies that we have needed in order to be able to do that, which then allows us uh, to 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 bring robots to all of these people and organizations that haven't been able to, you know, to really take advantage of them in the past. And, and, and that, I mean, that mission is what has been uh, you know, exciting to me over the last several years, because everyone should be able to leverage the power of a robot to be able to make the lives and productivity of the people in the environment better. Um, and not just, you know, not just the apples and the Amazons of the world.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I thought was pretty interesting when I was hanging out on your website was the fact that it seemed almost self-serve. So when I think about these third-party logistic type warehouses, I imagine that you would have a team, they would go in there, they would do a bunch of work and set all these systems up. And then I saw one of your bullet points was like, you don't have to involve the IT team I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And so you can unbox the robots, create a map, set up tasks, you know, work with the robots directly. And I thought to myself, is that real? Like, are customers actually doing that? Can
1: they make an order and then set the robots up themselves? They can and do. So uh, there are things like, um, you know, so I recently set up some, some of these smart doorbells at my house. You know, I, I got on my Wi-Fi and my phone. I pointed the QR code at the camera. It made a little chime and I'm connected. Getting the Wi-Fi in the robot, exactly the same way. Once you've got the robot sort of connected, um, then what you do is you have to help it understand its environment. The way I understand it's help the robot understand its environment, I get a joystick that looks like any other, you know, Xbox or Steam Deck China joystick, and I just drive the thing around. As I'm driving around that robot in the environment, it's using all of its sensors to map and understand the environment that it's in. So then when you give it instructions and say, look, I, you're here. So the localization, so it understands where it is. I need you to go there. Um, and you, and you sort of apply the sort of the semantics of what is what, you know, this is a shelf and this is the packing station and this is where you pick. And then it just goes. Um, and so it's really designed um, for people that really understand what they're trying to do and their process, um, and not, and, and, and don't have to, don't have to code. Um, don't have to sort of speak robot. Um, they can speak human, <laughs> And, um, and so there's a, you know, there's a workflow builder in the software and it's literally a sort of drag and drop. It's like you're creating a, you know, like a flow diagram and you say, look, you know, first you go over here um, and then you wait. Well, what are you waiting for? I'm waiting for the door to open. Okay. So as soon as the door opens, then you move forward. Um, and so it's those kind of tools and capabilities that have allowed us to make it possible for people that do really understand their environment, but don't understand robots to be able to get them you know, set up and and running pretty quickly. And so depending on the complexity of your task, you know, you can start in the morning and have it working in the afternoon. You know, if you've got a more complex task, it might take a little bit longer, but these kinds of robots allow you to do things that, you know, in the past would have taken, you know, many, many months to be able to do. Uh, And and that was one of our design goals was if you understand your environment and and know how to use basic tools like, you know, flow charting and, uh, you know, to be able to do a QR code, then you can take advantage of a robot.
0: Yeah, it had a very low code, no code UI type interface. When I saw the screenshots, yep. yeah, yeah. So, how many robots do you have?
1: You know, I've lost track. I mean, we've got thousands of robots out there now. Oh, how um, many
0: unique like types?
1: Do you oh, have? types of robots. Yeah. Well, we have um, we have uh, we have pretty small ones and big ones, and um, some of the robots are for special purposes. So, for let me give you an example. Um, some environments have conveyors, um, and, and then workstations. And one of the movements of material is, Hey, I just finished my task at my workstation and I want to get it onto a conveyor and have it go to pack out, for example, and get shipped to somebody. We have a, a little robot. Um, the base is about the size of a, you know, an extra large pizza. Um, and then on top of it is a very small piece of conveyor. Um, and so what happens is if it goes to the, it may get called by the person sitting at the workstation. The tote of whatever it is they were working on moves on to the conveyor that's sitting on the top of the big pizza box. Um, and then the robot goes and and um, connects up, docks up with a conveyor. It has an IoT gateway that's part of its um, understanding of the world. And so it says, I've now arrived. I'm going to start my conveyor. I'm going to start the conveyor on the other side, and we're going to move the tote off and then take it out to, uh, you know, take it out to pack out. So this is a little little robot. Um, it's called the Roller Top, and its job is to do material movement, specifically environments that involve you know involve conveyors. We also have robots. Another one called the Flex Shelf, um, and it's designed to work in uh, each picking environment. So this is you know very large, you know four hundred thousand square foot warehouse, and um, lots of orders coming in, and the robot is assigned. I want you to pick. I want you to um, have these things picked into these totes. And then bring them back to pack out we'll assemble them into orders and out they go and so in those environments the people stay put um, because in a typical warehouse environment people are spending about half of their time walking and the walking is um that automating the walking part immediately sort of doubles your productivity because you're eliminating half the time that they're spending sort of and, and what people are really good at is finding something on a shelf figuring out how to grasp it coming back to the hands again Um, So the perception piece, the grasping piece, and then rapidly getting it into a, you know, getting into a tote that's going to be taken to pack out. So the flex shelf robot is, um, think about it as like, you know, three shelves, has a variety of, you know, totes sitting on it, has lights running down both sides. So the human picker is in a zone. The robot comes to him or her, stops by where the pick needs to happen, lights up where on the shelf the item is, um, brings up on the screen this is the item that you're looking for. This is the quantity that you're looking for. The person will pick the quantity, scan it with the barcode scanner that's on the robot. It'll be told again with the lights on the side. I want you to then put it into this toe. Um, it puts it into the toe um, and then the person goes off to do their next pick and the robot goes off to do its next pick. that's another you know another another great example. Then we then we also have um, robots that are that are quite large that can hold a full, pallet. So our uh, Fetch 1500, it's a 1500 kilogram payload. Um, I mean, if you think about a pallet full of cinder blocks, uh, you you know, it can, it can move those around and leave them places It can have them, uh, you know, picked up by forklifts and then taken to other places or taken up into high base storage. So there are, uh, I think, six different robot types, you know, between the big ones and the medium ones, the roller tops, the flex shelf. Another robot is using the same base as the roller top, so the, again, the one that's the size of sort of a big pizza, and then it moves carts around. So you could have a variety of carts in your environment to move materials around. When you're done, you push a button, a robot comes, gets the cart, takes it where it needs to go, and leaves an empty cart in its place. Again, tasks that the person, the human worker, is so much more productive if they don't have to do you know those kind of things, like you know pushing carts for long distances inside a manufacturing or a warehouse environment. So you're really into this, like you're
0: really deep into robots. And then you see things like Elon Musk come out and show this like uh, bipedal robot that you'll be able to buy for your house. How
1: far do you think we are from that? Uh, decades, I think, before we're at that point. Yeah. The, the um, it's sort of an interesting philosophical conversation there because you know, sort of coming back to to, to Rosie for a minute. Um, you know, R- Rosie vacuumed, she cooked, she cleaned, she took care of Elroy can't remember what Ro- Ro the dog was called, but, uh, you know, so she did all things. Most robots don't work that way. Creating robots that are flexible enough to do a very wide range of tasks is really hard. And so, it, as you've seen sort of the evolution so far, we end up with more special purpose robots. So, we have the Roomba that doesn't look anything like a Rosie, right? But to, to be able to do just vacuuming. You've got robots that look like Roombas that, you know, mow the lawn. You've got robots now prototyping that fold clothes. Again, don't look anything like a Roomba. So you've got sort of specialized um, robots that do specific things.
0: Hold on a second. I I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm going to. There's robots that can fold clothes. Like I can buy a robot that will fold my clothes. There are
1: yes prototypes, early ones, but yeah. Okay,
0: so they're not like I can't. There's not like a a known model that's popular that people buy. I couldn't
1: send you to a website to buy one, but uh, but yeah, if you go to some of the shows and events, you'll see uh, clothes folding robots. So. I mean, if you think about what a lot of people will do is one of the things I really hate to do in my house, whether it's vacuuming, mowing the lawn, or folding clothes. And uh, yeah, a lot of um, people are figuring out how do I get how do I get robots to do those things. So um, yeah, I mean, we'll end up we'll end up with all of those. Um, the the um, the 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 robots with legs are interesting. Legs are really hard. Um, uh, I mean, Boston Dynamics has been doing them, you know, for a long time. They're, they're, they are they're can be relatively expensive. You would never do something with a robot with legs that you couldn't do with wheels, and you wouldn't do something with wheels that you could do with a rail. And so really it really comes down to the application. Now, we're not going to put, you know, rails in our house. And so, yeah, at some point we may have robots with wheels. In fact, I can't remember the name of the, the little, um, the new Amazon robot that's sort of an Alexa on wheels but you know, so that one sort of navigates around. I mean, you see it on wheels before you'll see it on legs. We may eventually get to the point where robots with legs are, you know, good enough and cheap enough that they're going to be, you know, sort of mainstay in a lot of people's homes. I I think we've got years, years really before that happens.
0: You know what I think will come before we get the fully autonomous bipedal robots? I think that we will get you know, like a base on wheels, right. That's got a torso and then like really good arms and cameras. And then there will be people like in a call center that'll be able to, you know, have these gloves and operate the hands that way, you know, they look at like elderly care. You can have all these robots stored in some closet in their house. And then a person can be in one central location and pair into the robot, do the dishes, pair into the robot, do all of these you know, chores around the house. Do you think that's going to
1: happen? Oh, I do. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, if you look at like Intuitive Surgical, that developed the Da Vinci robot. I mean, that's a remote robot for doing things like, you know, surgery. You know, there's a there's a, a great company up in the San Francisco Bay Area called Third Wave Automation that does human in the loop um, autonomous forklifts. I mean, again, if you come back to sort of the uh, warehouse environment, you know, they're pretty complicated. And so getting a robot to be able to navigate that 100% of the time without human intervention Is really hard and it's going to take a while. And so what they've done is created um, technology that allows them to have the robots running autonomously most of the time, but then you also have a human in the loop. So when they get stuck, um, it basically calls the human. The human's like, oh, okay, so I need to navigate through this particularly tricky spot. Or if you think of a a, a pallet that's, that's wrapped with plastic and the plastic is clear and the clear plastic is covering the spot where the tines are supposed to go. If the robot gets confused the human can see oh it's just sort of the plastic we'll just sort of you know go right through that and be able to pick up the pallet those are the kind of environments whether the person's remote you know at the other end of the warehouse or remote at the other end of the world you're going to have people that sort of jump in to you know to to help in in certain situations the 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 other interesting use case that you brought up though and again coming back to, to rodney brooks one of the things that he had said to me you know a decade ago was because of the demographic inversion you know, there are the people that are retiring. Uh, there's more people retiring than there are sort of younger people coming in to replace them, um, and so the demographic. And this is this is true to a degree in the United States. It's particularly true in other countries. You know, like Japan, you're having more and more people that are needing services from fewer and fewer people, and so one of the things that Rodney said that I thought was quite profound was, "I'm building robots to take care of me when I get old." Um, because there aren't going to be enough people to do it, and so we're going to have to find ways that we can leverage robots and automation to help people, and and and, and that help can take a couple of different forms. If you think about um, people as they age, some of them have you know physical limitations. So are there things that I can do via automation to help people sort of physically, whether it's physically get around, perform tasks, they have to be able to take a bath, like uh, those kinds of things. But then the other challenge that people have is. Um, you know, limitations cognitively as they age? Are there things that you can do with software-enabled robotics to help people manage through the cognitive challenges that many of us will face as we get older? So if you think about both the physical and the cognitive, robots are in a unique position to be able to help, you know, from an elder care perspective, and we're going to need it because there aren't, you can just look at sort of the 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 the, the movement of people, you know, through the various generations, there just aren't going to, we've done a a fantastic job of helping people live longer and longer, which is wonderful. Um, and we don't have enough people that are being born right now. So we're going to need to to rely on robots, you know, to help us uh, take care of ourselves. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm sort of fascinated and interested in the, you know, the things that people are doing to, you know, how, how can I get a robot that can relate to me easily? How can I get a robot that doesn't, I mean, one of the things I love to do is when I go to a customer site and they take out the robot for the first time, do they pull it out of the box and do they sort of lean in and are they you know are, are they willing to get close to it or are they intimidated by it? Do they sort of step back because what you want to do is create technology that people feel comfortable with so that they're drawn to it. Hey, so a lot of our robots, I'll go to I'll, I'll go to you know a customer site and they're they're all named you know sort of this um, you know personification of a robot of you know there there's there's Herbie you know there goes Herbie again and and so you know people will. Um, um sort of attach you know names um, sports memorabilia um depending on which part of the you know country that you're in and um and and, and that in, in many ways in some ways you know could sound silly um but, but in other ways it's making it easier for people and robots you know to work together and that will never be more true than it is in the home environment you know my mother who's in her 80s now i need to create the robots that she's going to be comfortable with you know, not the computer science kid with the master's degree. And so that's going to be a huge area for us going forward And because it has to be. Um, We're going to have to leverage robotics in order to be able to, uh, you know, to to, to help everyone. I mean, as I think about, you know, um, older people in particular, um, you know, many people want to be able to stay in their homes as long as possible. If we can use technology to help them do that, like, isn't that adding goodness in the world? Like, that's the kind of thing I think that attracts many of us into the robotic space. How can we do good in the world leveraging some of these technologies?
0: Yeah, I've got physicians as my family members and the recovery rate when you can recover at home is so much better than recovering in a hospital. Uh, so that's that's yeah. definitely important. I want to touch on a couple of your points that you made. Uh, the ki- Like, less kids replenishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I fully believe that. My parents came from families where they had six or seven siblings. They all had roughly three to four kids. And now my peers are having one, maybe two. Like yeah. I am, they think I'm odd because I just had my third. They're like, whoa, how do you have all those kids? You got a really big family there. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome.
1: And yeah. I was
0: like, we're, I told Michelle, my wife, I was like, we're going for eight. And she goes, ha
1: ha. <laughs> <laughs> I go, I'm yeah. going to take Elon Musk strategy. <laughs> <laughs> She may say, yeah, look, you may be going for eight, but uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I have a say of this too. So uh, yeah, I'd yeah, I, i th- I'd heard the stat, I think it's 1.8. Um, And so if you've got two parents having 1.8 kids, yeah, it doesn't scale.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. It's almost like we're this giant organism and as we become more affluent and we we produce less. Do you think that's... Do you think that's why, like if life is easier, okay, here's an example. I live out in the middle of nowhere, right? On a farm, coyotes, right? Coyotes, huge deal. They have this uh, attribute about them where the females and, and the males, they'll howl back and forth to the nearby packs. And based off of the responses that they get from their neighboring packs determines how many offspring the female produces in her next litter. Right. Sure. So they'll actually if you start killing them off, they'll start producing more. It's fascinating. If you watch this documentary, they started out um, in the West Coast and now they're in every city in the United States. They're in New York City that we've just been completely dominated by these coyotes. So I was wondering if like if there's a human because that's biology, right? That's biology. Good. That's their are Engagement with society actively affecting the reproduction abilities. And nobody argues this. It's like very easy to watch and measure. Mm-hmm. But we don't look at ourselves that much like this. At least I don't read a lot of material or come across it where people are, are exploring these, these sort of ideas. But I wonder if that has something to do with it. Cause now that we have robots, you know, we, and, and we, we have relative safety, right? As far as li- going about and living our lives, maybe our biological desires are just changing based off
1: of our environment. I could imagine. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to think about, yeah, those kinds of studies too. If you think back to the, um, I won't remember these stats right off the top of my head, but the turn of the, going from the 1800s to the 1900s, most people, their jobs were somehow related to putting food on the table. I mean, so there was a heavy, heavy agricultural component. If you look at the turn of the century from the 1900s to the 2000s, that number went, you know, way, way, way down. And if you think about like, what did somebody do in their day back in the early 1900s you know washing the clothes was a big deal because you know you had to go down to the river and get water and use the scrubbing board and and um uh, and that was just very time consuming and now uh, you know now it's uh, you know you sort of it into colors and and and, uh, and and hot and cold and then you throw it in and off you go and so these technologies that have developed have, uh, have, have changed what we do i i know that there is some thinking that well what are we going to do when all of these tasks are automated are we going to be you know all sort of you know poets and artists and, and and I think that's a probably an oversimplified view but but I do think that there is there's an aspect of the way in which our engagement with the technology is shifting the way that we think about how we want to be spending our time and you know it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if it's having an impact on uh, you know families and and how we're thinking about it um there's probably a Sort of a uh, socioeconomic component too, um, in that um, you know more and more families have two people working rather than one. It's getting harder and harder to uh, you know to to have a a good living just based on you know one person's salary. And so there's probably an aspect of that I would guess. That's
0: if you want to keep up with your peers, like if you're okay with having less, you can definitely make it work. But oh, the secret to happiness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: No, I'm I'm serious. Yeah. I think people get sort of caught up in um. Wow, he doesn't have a better job than I do, but he's got that fancy Mercedes over there. I work hard. I deserve that damn Mercedes. I'm going to get one too. Really? Do I need one? Uh, I mean, you know, I I go back and forth to CVS and you know pick up some aspirin. Like I, I, so I think we start to attach a lot of value to the accumulation of things, and um, I think the The happiest people are not necessarily, in fact, in many cases, they're not those with the most things.
0: Oh, yeah. There's plenty. of There's the happiness documentaries. I've seen a bunch of them. I struggled Mm -hmm. with this myself because I grew up uh, fairly poor, so I had a very strong desire to figure out money. And I did, and I had it, and I lost it, and then I got it back and figured out how to build wealth. But I never thought, like if you could go back to the 15-year-old version of me, saying that there will be a point in your life where you'll be sick of buying things. Mm -hmm. Like you can have within reason, everything that you want, right? Uh, You can have like the nicest class of, of everything, but you will get sick of it. And then you just won't want to have that many things. And I would tell you that you're crazy. I'd be like, no way. But it's fascinating how once you get to a certain financial place, how uninteresting it is to have, you, you just become incredibly accustomed to it very, very fast. And then it's just about what I have found. I had to change the game from acquiring things and building money to building my character, like figuring out how to challenge myself and grow myself. One thing I'm working on right now. I saw on your website you have amazing videos, B roll of these robots. And you have this one <laughs> robot that's somewhat tall and slender and it's got these LED strips on the side that are yeah. nice and diffused and it looks looks really futuristic. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was doing this past weekend. I was putting LED lights into this custom um, closet that I'm building in our bedroom. So I started doing some woodworking and I've never inlaid LEDs into anything. So I've been learning all about like the LED per meter and how to get that nice look because it's not easy to get that smooth look. So when I saw it, I was like, they're, they're they know what they're doing. They've got the good look of the LEDs. <laughs> <laughs> that's hard. Yeah.
1: I know. But my, my, my grandfather um, volunteered in World War II to, uh, go over and help fight the war he was in his 30s so they were you know they all referred to him as the old guy um unfortunately he uh you know he died at you know in d-day so i didn't get a chance to meet him but he was a but he was a carpenter and and i can really relate you know because i like to build things i like to you know create things and so as you were talking about you know sort of woodworking and figuring out how how to get just that one look i mean that's you know for me personally that's a way that i you know i i uh derive joy i mean it's 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 very rewarding. And, um, and th- th- you'd mentioned sort of accumulating, you know, stuff. And then there's sort of that George Carlin skit on that from, you know, years and years ago, but I get more value out of getting rid of stuff. I mean, if both is it? it's both cathartic, but also, you know, if I've got some shirt that's been sitting in my closet, that's in perfectly good shape for the last three years, that's not bringing any value to the world. And there are people that don't have shirts. And so if I can find a way to get that in the hands of somebody who could benefit it as opposed to just collecting dust in my closet for another four years, you know, there's 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 value there. And so spending some of my time on those kind of things, I find really, really rewarding.
0: Oh, 100%. So when COVID happened, we sold everything, our house, all of our possessions, bought an RV and then traveled around the United States for 10 months. Wow. Yeah, that that's how we found this place out. And I'm just outside of Nashville on this little farm and- the the feeling that i felt i'll remember until my deathbed you know the when we were pulling out of the house after the closing had happened and the last items were in the rv and we were just driving away I felt so light and free and amazing and opportunities and adventure. And that's the exact opposite feeling that you have when you have this, you know, compound and all of these things. And, and it's, it's just a, it's a real interesting, I don't know, whoever made this thing called life, they're, is, they, they did a good job. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. totally. I remember when I, when I packed up and left school as a senior, everything I owned fit in the back of my Toyota Corolla. And uh, yeah, it was it was totally deliberate. I mean, I you know I wasn't attached to you know anything uh, or any, uh, any place um, or you know it wasn't stuff sort of driving. it was me driving. <laughs> Pardon the pun there, but um, yeah,
0: I want to talk about ethics, mm-hmm. That always comes up when we're talking about AI and robots and, and things of that nature. I know you're in industrial manufacturing, but the industry as a whole obviously has to handle this conversation of ethics how do you see it from your point of view
1: yeah so a few factors i mean there's um there's no doubt that the future has the potential to get into some pretty tricky places and and we're already um you know we, we've already got a toe in that water I, I mean if you even look at some of the you know some the deep fake videos and and um you're like what's real anymore and um you know, it is creating, like, I don't know what to, I don't know what to trust. I don't know what to believe. And and of course, in the current environment, you know, we're all skeptical of, of sort of the world around us, which in in some form is, um is, is sort of a sad commentary because, of, you know, the, you know, hope and, and, and wonder and the art of the possible, I hate seeing sort of get squelched by, you know, uh, well, that can't be real. Somebody just sort of made it up because it's now possible to make up stuff that I can't tell the difference between what's real and what's not. Um, you know, and, 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 so the whole idea of the, you know, at, at what point am I going to be communicating with a machine where I don't know it's a machine and it's, you know, because I thought it was a human and, and, and then, and then it gets even sort of, you know, further complicated by, we're going to go through a phase where the robots are able to, and, and automation and AI in particular, they're going to be able to sort of tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, Jim, you're doing that really well, but, um, if you do it just a little bit differently, I can, I can help you get a better result. And of course, you know, I'll be sitting there going, Awesome. You know, I want help. Help me do my job better. But but then as you sort of keep progressing that, you know, eventually you could get to the place where, you know, the, the robot starts to take on capabilities and sentience and, and and the ability to, you know, start to think about its environment in ways that could be uh, you know, could be challenging. So I think the you know the the work that people are doing to think about how do we sort of commit ourselves as an industry, to upholding some set of, you know, ethical boundaries? I mean, is it something that takes the form of what professionals in the medical field do from a, you know, do-no-harm perspective? I mean, how do we commit to each other to try to, you know, create the world that we want and not, um, you know, one that has, uh, you know, nefarious robots running around? I mean, this isn't an area that I, you know, personally spend a lot of time on it. So I'm sure there's, you know, people that are much more thoughtful about sort of some of the best ways to, you know, to go about doing that. But, but I'm I, I'm I'm generally a, a pretty optimistic guy, and so I'm I'm hopeful about the you know sort of the human condition and our um, our fierce passion to try to figure out how to do this in the best possible way. And um, there's so much um, sort of you know goodness in the world and, and smart, innovative people. You know, I'm 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 hopeful that will you know that will figure it out. It 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 um it's it's probably not a you know a short term problem. But then as you know as, as, as a world we've got to figure out how to deal with the things that are you know potentially longer term problems. you know I, I recall back in the late 80s when I was doing the research for my thesis, I was in a, a room with some people that were debating you know whether or not um, you know global warming was real uh, you know there was absolutely no evidence to support it and somebody else was making the counter case you know and here we are and so you know somebody somewhere could be making the case that you know there's absolutely no way in which, you know ai will develop to the point where it could be causing you know harms to humans i don't think we can eliminate that as a possibility so we are better off as a society if we consider the possibility and and uh, and figure out what are the things that we do to avert the version of the world that we don't want to see and i'm glad to see and i'm very supportive of the people that are spending time thinking about that
0: Yeah, and and government is not the answer. That's always my first thought is like government. And then I I was talking with some people about it and they made a very good point that government works based off of the past. So like a a bunch of kids you know, die because of this toy, right? Then they legislate it out, right? Or a bunch of fraud happens because of this thing and then they legislate it out. So it's always happening in hindsight. And when we start talking about, you know, the AI apocalypse—that's not something you can handle in hindsight. That's something that the industry has to just figure <laughs> yeah, out on its way. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. When it's over, it's over. So yeah,
0: yeah. San Francisco with that killer robot—what did you think when you saw that?
1: Yeah, that was it. That was a quick about face, there, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, we're going to have to, um, you know, self-police. I mean, we're going to have to, you know, catch each other, and um, we're going to make mistakes, and, and hopefully, we won't make sort of the cataclysmic ones. It's, and, and and we will we will learn from them. I mean, so it's a lot like, you know, I remember, uh, you know, when I first had children, right, they didn't, they didn't come with a handbook. Um, but, uh, you know, somebody that I respect um, said to me once, you have to allow them to make some of the mistakes, because that's how they learn and figure out, you know, their own path. And I think we're gonna have to make some of those mistakes so that we can figure out our own path. And you know just like kids you know there are circumstances where you know you don't let them put the fork into the electric to- socket and so we're going to have to figure out how we make sure that um you know as an industry we don't we don't do that but yeah we're going to make some some boo-boos along the way
0: yeah that's what i'm learning how old are your kids
1: 18 20 okay
0: so, you, so they're alive they you did a good job you got them raised you know, up
1: you yeah they they made it and uh well they made it at least out of the house so. <laughs> <laughs> although. I don't know. They're not quite out. They'll be circling back, I'm sure, but uh, yeah.
0: Mine, to your point exactly, is, you know, as a new parent, you're all very concerned and then, you know, you realize that you have to keep them alive, like stopping them with the fork, but then you also have to let them make the mistakes and figuring that out, there's no book for it. It's it's not a science. It's an art and it's very situational and your kids are vastly different and so, yeah. for me, I'm going through that, you know, right now and so, um, it's exciting. And I'm only sleeping about like half the time. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my wife will say there's there, there's 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 um, years in her memory that she doesn't have because uh, she was up a lot, uh, you know, during that period of time. And, you know, I, I, I could help when I can, but uh, sometimes she would have to take on more of the responsibility in the late night hours. But, um, uh, yeah, there's 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 those tricky years where there's not much sleep involved.
0: Oh, my wife's the best, dude. She does everything. I (laughs) I told her I was like, "Hey, look, you like you can work, and we can both sort of like share responsibilities, or you can like not work, and you can take care of the kids." And what do you want to do? And she's like, "I want to just take. I want to be a mom." She's like, "I've always wanted to be a mom. I I just, you know, we can have less money, uh, and we can just, you know, be okay with that, and then I can spend time with the kids." So we. Got this farm, we homeschool our kids, and I built a studio about twenty-five yards away from the main house. So, you know, I was I get to have lunch with them every day. You know, she can come over at five o'clock and tell me I have to come out.
1: (laughs) I was I was hugely impacted by people that I saw before me, men in particular, that didn't know their kids. And 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 I was committed, I said, when 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 I have kids. I'm going to make sure that, um, you know, when my son calls, I, I, answer the phone. Um, and, and, um, and I'm very cognizant of how much I travel and where I travel, um, because I don't want to be one of those people that, um, you know, that, that their daddy is the guy that shows up for the weekend, you know, takes him to a baseball game and then disappears again. Mm-hmm. And, um, cause it's all those things during the week, <laughs> you know, when something doesn't go- quite go the way they're looking for and they, uh, want and they, you know they're looking for somebody to uh you know to sort of help them through that, and um I think that's where a lot of the you know the relationships get built, and so um well, you're a good dad. Yeah, I, I I mean it's easy it's easy to you know to uh to make mistakes, and I've I've certainly made you know I've made my fair share, and um you know it, it's it's funny because as you start to get you know a little bit of money, you know people start having these conversations around well, what do you, you know what do you want your legacy to be. And so you know you'll read these articles about legacy and a lot of people have you know foundations and 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 buildings with with names on them you know I, I would be happy if my legacy were you know my 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 kids thought I was a good parent and, and and they are you know well adjusted and have found a way to find joy in their life and bring joy to other people like if that could be my legacy like I'm done <laughs> I don't care about a name on a building I don't care how much money is in the bank account You know, I care that I've been able to do something to impact, you know, people that I love in a positive way. Yeah, that's more important to me than anything. Well,
0: two points. The first about answering the phone. So my parents divorced when I was 12 and and then I didn't live with my biological father, my dad, but he only lived an hour away. So I, I saw him often. And the one thing that was super interesting was in my lifetime, my dad was the most reliable human being. Like... I would say less than five times in my life in my 34 years have I called him and he not answered. And those times were like when he was out of the country, right? <laughs> you know, And I didn't know that they were out of the country as an adult. So that to me gives me this insane like sense of security. Like I know he will pick up that phone. And, mm-hmm. and that just that little act is so important. Yes. There's a million other things that have gone positive and negative and whatnot, but knowing that when I call, he'll be there has, has really helped me in my life. And the second thing is when I started to have kids and started to talk with him about being a dad asking him, you know, how does he think about it? And what, what did he do? Mm-hmm. He shared this brief story. Um, his father was abusive Right, so when he was eighteen, he left Air Force. Like day he could leave, he left. Right, Air Force, and then learned electronics, uh, hardware and software uh, engineering. Mm-hmm. And then he came out of the Air Force and did freelance and built built things. So from that whole experience, he said that in his mind, all he wants to do is have his kids to just be a little bit better than him. So, you know, his dad's dad was even worse. His dad, you know, did it less. My dad didn't abuse us at all, right. you know. And then on top of that, he took us from, you know, poverty to not poverty and, <laughs> you know, poverty to middle class uh, over the course of, of our upbringing. And then, you know, now we're, I'm, taking the kids to the, to the next level. So that perspective of just being a little bit better in each successive generation, that's an interesting way to look at parenting and it's helped relieve a lot of stress from me as far as, you know, cause you have to f- determine what's success and all of this as a parent. So that was the perspective that I thought was incredibly valuable.
1: Yeah. What an awesome story. Yeah. No, I, th- I think, yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. I mean, my, you know, my father retired as a You know, a technician making $22,000 a year. He was one of the happiest people I knew. He was always there for me. I mean, we struggled, you know, with money growing up, you know, but I got, um, you know, they prioritized a good education for me, At you know, sacrifices that they made. Yeah, I'm hugely grateful and appreciative. Um, And, uh, yeah, if I could take just a little bit of that and add on to it, you know, as I try to raise my own, you know, my own children, I think that's a, a great perspective. Dude, good
0: yeah. dad. I I enjoy having this dad conversation with you. This is fun. <laughs> As we start to wrap up, because I'm watching time, I yep. want to uh, you know our audience is largely tech leaders, people that want to grow mm-hmm. in their career. They come on to listen to really bright people like you. You know, share their experiences. Everyone always asks me. They're like, you know, what's the best piece of leadership advice that you've ever received and then put into practice and it's been great. So I, I like to pass that question on to you. What's the, mm-hmm. what's the best piece of leadership advice that you ever, you re, you had to receive it and then you had to put it into action and it was useful for you.
1: Hmm. The best piece of advice I received was someone that said to me, wisdom is knowing what you're not good at. Every one of us is human. We all have things that we do well. We all have things that we don't do well. Um, and most things, success requires us to be good at things that we're not. Um, and so if we are open to the possibility that you know, we have strengths and we have things that are challenging, that then we're in a much better position to be able to figure out what's necessary to be able to, to, to pull together something so that it's going to be successful, so that it works. And, and if you explicitly acknowledge that I'm not good at this, this, and this, And so I'm going to um, work with, or um, uh, if you're a leader, build a team or surround yourself by people who can um, uh, support the things that you're not good at, then you're putting yourself and your organization in a much better position to be able to succeed. I worked with another person a couple of decades earlier, and, and his view was very similar, although he sort of couched it in different language. He said... When you're designing an organization, make sure you don't have two levels of incompetence. And what he meant was, if this thing, whatever that is, um, attention to detail, understanding the industry, whatever it is, if you are not good at it and the person above you or below you is not good at it, then you're sort of setting yourself up to have a problem. And so it sort of comes back to, if I know it's required and I know that I'm not good at it, I better hire for it or surround myself with people that are that are good at it, and you know, so as a, as an example, you know, I'm I'm an analytical kind of guy. I like things. I like sort of building things. Um, I like technology. I'm not necessarily very good at detecting how somebody's feeling. And so, if you're going to be a leader in an organization, it's pretty important that you understand how the organization is feeling. So, I surround myself with people that are really good at sort of connecting and understanding how people are feeling to, to help compensate for a blind spot that I have. So I tried to use that um, advice that I had gotten years ago to, to think about, okay, in this situation, in this environment, here's the five things that, that need to be in place, and I've got two of them. So what are we gonna do about the other three? <laughs> and um, I, that little bit of advice has helped me so so often. It, it it also, um I believe, forces you to be humble and 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 grateful, not for what you're good at, but for other people's strengths. Uh, you know, because it's I mean, as an analytical person, it's pretty easy to um you know how come he or she didn't get the right answer. I mean, it's easy right da, 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 here's, here's what you do. And maybe that isn't their strength, but they've got some other superpower. and maybe that's really important in this equation too. That's how I would think about it.
0: Do you find yourself coaching the next generation of leaders at your company about what their superpowers are?
1: I do. And and what what sometimes I find that people have a superpower they don't understand and to help them sort of see that is such a rewarding thing. You'll be able to detect in somebody that they're, you know, really good in certain situations and um, to, to help them sort of see that and say, did you notice when you were in this environment, you did this and it had this impact and that changed fundamentally what was going on. And so your ability to tap into that, you know, use those powers for good because you've got something that a lot of people don't have and it can help you not only from a career perspective, but it can help you help your organizations be successful. And to, to to um you know, to, to help sort of draw that out in people and help them sort of, Hone and refine that ability and that skill is just hugely rewarding, and it's great to be able to sort of see people start to understand their their strengths and uh, and be able to use them in positive ways.
0: Yeah, I want to challenge people that are listening to go, and I don't know if this is going to be a good challenge. So you can help me figure this out. <laughs> but you explain some situation where you you know you're seeing and you're coaching and you're helping them see what they can't see there, uh, but the people who are listening you know, they could go to the the person that's outside of their bubble, right? Like maybe one of their mentors or leaders within the organization and they
1: could ask them what their strengths are. Would that be a good conversation to start with? That'd be an awesome conversation, yeah. One of the things, in fact, literally I had this conversation with somebody two hours ago. I said to him, I said, you have such experience and expertise and what I love about our relationship is you don't have an agenda. So it allows me to be, transparent and open and vulnerable, which puts me in the best position to learn and grow. And so what I would recommend to people, if they can, find people that have experience and expertise that you respect, who don't have an agenda other than to help you um, you know, become a better person or become a better leader. Um, and if you can find those people, it's hugely rewarding um, and, uh, and, and really helps. You know, I mean, the day we stop growing is the day we, you know, begin to die. And so, I, I think it's really important that we all constantly focus on how are we growing, what are we learning, how are we better equipping ourselves, whether it's in the work environment or the home environment. You know, with with any with any luck, I mean, I'll be you know thirty years from now, um, my kids, and I'll, I'll still be parenting them in some form, probably a very different form. But if I can continue to learn how to do that better and better. And and I'll only be able to do that if I keep myself open to the possibility that I have things to to learn and, and, and develop as I grow, you know, whether I'm 30, 50, or 80. So, Otherwise,
0: life is boring.
1: It is, yeah. <laughs> Let's keep some uh, spark in life in there that makes it sort of, uh, you know, interesting. It's funny, I had a, a debate with someone the other day. If you could find out what the date is that you're not going to be on the earth anymore— would you want to know? Yes. And, um, and so it was a really interesting um, sort of philosophical conversation of, you know, yes, I'd be able to plan, but no, I'd, I, I'd, I'd sort of have some aspect of the surprise taken out of it. And the surprise in itself creates goodness in some forms. And um, so it, it, it's probably one of those questions that doesn't have, you know, a right answer per se, but, um, but, but the, um, you know, not knowing what a day brings for some, can create you know ambiguity and stress, and you know for others, you know it's part of the richness in life that we live. So,
0: well, if you had enough knowledge to guarantee that you telling me knowing the date would not impact the date, then I would want to know. But if it's like <laughs> a, I don't know, because I I don't want to roll the dice yes. and find out it's when I'm sixty, but because I learned the date, it's now you know fifty or whatnot. Yeah, uh, but. I, I, I'm the type of person that I like to know the end of the movie and then I love to watch how we get there like I love figuring out what the end of the movie is like I en- I enjoy it a lot and that's like 80% of the time and then 20% of the time I want to be you know surprised and just kind of roll with it but uh, it, I, I really love the journey yeah oh man this is great Jim I'm actually really surprised like this has been a fantastic like this exceeded my expectations man
1: uh, same here. Really, uh, really appreciated uh, all kinds of uh, things that we talk about. So, yeah, life is uh, life's a Life's an interesting thing, and um, you know, it's it's funny because when I was younger, somehow I had arrived at this view that my work life and my home life were different, and I needed to keep them in boxes. You know, but the reality is, you know, I'm the same person in both places that are both affected by the experiences that I'm having, and so what I'm experiencing when I'm with you at work is in part impacted by the experience that I had this morning and last night. And, um, and so, you know, I've gotten to the point where, you know, there's just one me and, um, and I'm a collection of experiences, some of which are in the work environment and some of which are in the home environment and some of which sort of cross over into both. But I've come to appreciate sort of the, the, the power of sort of thinking through that lens. And, um, I'm generally a pretty private person, but, um, you know, sort of keeping things, again, sort of entirely separate, I think it's much easier to get to know people and, uh, um, and build relationships when they can experience the whole you and not just the part of you that you choose to share because you're in a, you know, quote-unquote work environment.
0: It's much easier to just be one version of you, 100%. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.